This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... MK Ultra in Fall of Delta Green. Instant Pot 2, the Instant Potning. Doppelganger. And Arthurian History Theories. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the clunk of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the beautiful modernist appurtenances tell us that we are once more in the gaming hut. We have our uh, special vinyl edition of the latest Imagine's Dragons record, which we're putting out. And, of course, we've cut out a Larry Elmore a painting of a dragon and put it on the front because we don't have to imagine dragons, people. It's 2017. Uh, Hell, Ken, it's 2018. You're right. It's 2018. We've we've zapped forward in time, even right. due to the extreme modernism of the gaming hut. Possibly due to the listening of Imagine Dragons. Yes. Well, in 2017, we could have also taped a Larry Elmore illustration to an Imagine Dragons. No, I'm uh, saying record. that after listening to it, we woke up and found ourselves in the future. So I'm tempted, uh, partly just to riff on this for another 15 minutes, but partly <laughs> also maybe to do our actual schedule topic. So Ken, uh, we're going to demonstrate today. We're going to riff up. A campaign uh, arc, create a seed for Fall of Delta Green. So before we go any further, Ken, what is this Fall of Delta Green we speak of? I'm glad you asked, Robin. Fall of Delta Green is the gumshoe adaptation of the Delta Green role-playing game set in the 1960s, the decade before Delta Green was uh, disowned by the Joint Chiefs of Staff and theoretically disbanded forever. Although, of course, as all true Delta Green heads know, they merely went underground and became a conspiracy within the walls of the government. So this is the 1960s, the time of hubris and nemesis coming at Delta Green when the government did lots of clever things, including try to control the minds of unbelievers. Yes, indeed. So what we're going to do is we're going to take Perhaps the most famous CIA conspiratorial program of all, MKUltra, and use this as the uh, the seed, the hook, for an entire campaign arc in Fall of Delta Green. So let's start out, uh, Ken, by your quickly explaining to folks 
what the real historical MK Ultra was. Okay, the real historical MK Ultra begins shortly after the Korean War when uh there were lots of examples or at least several examples of US servicemen who had given propaganda broadcasts in which they said that Americans were doing all kinds of terrible things that they were awful people and there was war crimes and communism was good and uh the Korea the North Koreans were just innocent uh rubes just being beat up on by big old mean America and the CIA among the rest of American establishment knew that good American boys could never uh voluntarily say such horrible horrible things uh this being before Twitter. Um, so they felt that the North Koreans had attempted to brainwash our heroes into making these statements and reverse their ideology through some sort of combination of torture, um, uh, chemicals, and uh, probably, one expects, the mysteries of the Orient. Uh, so the CIA said, well, if the mysterious Orientals can do it, so can we. And they began an attempt to figure out how to do uh, brainwashing and mind control on, you know, anybody the CIA felt needed to have their ideology switched around. Uh, they begin this program in 1953 under the heading of the Black Sorcerer of the CIA. That is his actual nickname, <laughs> Dr. Sidney Gottlieb. How are we possibly going to weird this up, Ken, and turn I it into no a... Idea. It's so prosaic. It's just a simple government research program, Robin. Um, they attempted to uh, develop truth drugs and other brainwashing methodologies, uh, as well as just sort of work on behavioral science and try and figure out if there was a magical key to uh, snapping people on and off. The program goes along until circa 1963, depending on who you read, 63, right. 64. And by program, this, this actually was a gigantic octopus of stuff, right? There are like 80 different institutions between... You have pharmaceutical companies and, of course, universities. And there was a very famous uh, case. Uh, uh, Montreal was one of McGill yep. University. Was there one was of the main a, a, a Canadian, or actually was a Canadian, he wasn't Canadian, he was British, but he was in Canada, a guy named Dr. Donald Ewan Cameron, who was apparently uh, kind of a dodgy psychologist, as were they all, I'm sure, back then. And <laughs> yeah, I, so- I think if you're administering <laughs> LSD to uh, patients without consent, you get the dodgy label. <laughs> yep. And so he um, uh, um, did uh, research in uh, Canada on uh, people uh, on a uh, CIA uh, dime, which they claimed, in, in fairness, so did the CIA, uh, that he didn't know was CIA, that the money had been laundered by them, worked through a front group. And uh, there's other... Uh, laboratories all over the country. You can, you know, go as far as Kentucky. You can look at all manner of cases in which the CIA just sort of shows up and they take over a lab for a little while or they write a grant and someone just does a little piece of the MK Ultra research, thusly disguising the uh, scope and nature of the project from not just the hated Soviets, but also from boring old Congress. Yeah. <laughs> from, from people who might say, hey, wait a minute. What? what, what, what? Yeah. Um, so in 1964, it gets stepped down a little bit. And then in, as they say, allegedly, it's uh, stepped down again in 1967. And in 1973, Congress does get wind of it. And they say, hey, CIA Director Richard Helms, why don't you bring all the MK Ultra boxes uh, by and we can look into this foolishness. And he said, how about if I just shred the files and we all agree to, to, to call it a day? And that's what he does. He just shreds the MK Ultra files. 163 boxes of MK Ultra files get shredded on the direct order of Richard Helms in an attempt to keep anyone from knowing 
what I pretty much just said to you. But of course, once you do that, the Congress really starts digging in and the CIA being no different from any other government bureaucracy. There's lots of duplicate records sitting around that the uh, inspector general's office uh, puts together and Congress puts together to create what we know today about the uh, MK ultra, which is basically part of the broader uh, church committee hearings and uh, then in 1970, those are in 1974. Then in 1977, uh, Stansfield Turner discovers more MK Ultra records and turns them over to Congress. Uh, but that includes uh, the financing. And so that gives them the uh, sort of the bureaucratic structure, if not the details of every single experiment. Right. And one of the more famous incidents uh, uh, arising from MK Ultra is the suicide and or defenestration of a, a defense researcher named Frank Olson in New York City. And this uh, features in the recent Errol Morris documentary series on Netflix called Wormwood, which we both highly recommend. Mm-hmm. And uh, the implication there is that MKUltra is just another layer of the veil out to, to something else. But uh, we won't spoiler that any further. Um, right. it, for example, in 1964, MK Ultra is renamed MK Search, so that if someone comes to the CIA and says, uh, didn't you shut down that MK Ultra?" They can say, yes, we did. Oh, we sure did. Yeah, that MK Ultra that was bad. We shut that down. Mm-hmm. MK Search? Oh, no, this is good. It's a yeah, different one. It's a um, different program. Unrelated. We've, we've yet to have to throw anybody out a window over it. Yes. <laughs> well, not one in New York City. Yeah, we've anyway. improved the system. Yes. We're throwing people out of windows in Buenos Aires. It's a whole better system. Now, in the uh, continuity of Delta Green, MKUltra is, uh, of course, a long-standing uh, part of the original creation of that world. So uh, what is MKUltra in the world of Delta Green? Okay. According to the original Delta Green source book in 1997, MKUltra... Uh, secretly continued and succeeded in producing amnesia drugs and uh, mind control drugs by 1975. Uh, that's in the, you know, official Delta Green timeline and Majestic, of course, the covert uh, government conspiracy that exists to weaponize the mythos um, and to do deals eventually with the uh, gray aliens is um, in charge of the leftover MK Ultra research under the cover of their own MJ1 and MJ3 uh sub projects. So they absorbed all the mind control research into themselves because they recognized the utility of it for mythos operation and then uh perfected it in 1975 and then began to send people out to make crop circles and uh, uh no doubt conduct secret assassinations, claim they were abducted and in all ways conceal the activities of the MIGO on the earth. So, fall of Delta Green, uh, we're in uh, the late 60s, uh, mm-hmm. 68 are we going to start in, or a little earlier? Or what we, are can, we can start it whenever we want. Um, MK Ultra, as you know, goes all the way back to 1953. Before that, it, uh, there's a army project called Project Artichoke, and before that, there is a project in beginning in 1950 called Project Bluebird, which is just about hypnosis. And that's sort of once the Korean War gets started, they sort of go to Bluebird Artichoke and they say, all right, we need to figure out what's going on with this brainwashing. And it becomes MK Ultra. So do we want to have our characters be the ones uh, discovering MK Ultra from the outside? Or do we want to have them be the people who in, in 1967 in the official story, the uh, MK Ultra is further restricted, by which, of course, we can take it to mean that uh, is it handed off to the player characters? Is it handed off to 
uh, majestic types who the player characters then have to come into conflict with? Where, where do we want to go with this? I think that the best way to go in terms of drama is to have the player characters, or at least one of them, be part of MK Ultra's research team. And just like in Wormwood, they suddenly realize that experiments are not exclusively the property of ignorant rubes who are not part of the research team, that indeed, in some cases, the research team are also being uh, experimented on because you want to know if uh, the MKUltra methods work on someone who knows about the MKUltra methods. So that way you can have lots of uh, buried memories planted in the player's brains. You can have uh, things that maybe they were programmed to do under hypnosis that they suddenly uh, have to do. Um, one of them can be a Jason Bourne type. Uh, you can You can play around with that more, I think, if at least some of the player characters are MK Ultra veterans, even if they don't know they're MK Ultra veterans, uh, they were normal CIA or they were some other part of the federal scientific establishment, and only later do they discover, oh crap, that was actually part of MK Ultra. All the bird migratory patterns that I was studying turn out to be somehow connected to MK Ultra research. And of course, Sure, the MK Ultra guys just uh, studied bird migration because why not? Now, uh, we want to stick with uh, aliens and Mego and uh, and uh, saucers and and so forth as our uh, as our through line here. Um, that I think is going to depend in some way on uh, the player group, not necessarily the character group, because if they're old school Delta Green players from way back, they may expect that. They may say, this is our jam. This is what we love about the setting is that beautiful blend, blendation of X-Files and the mythos. So there's got to be aliens in it. On the other hand, newer players, uh, who have grown up post the great UFO flaps, uh, of the nineties may say, X-Files, that's that show my dad watches. Um, I don't care about you a- aliens. I want to do crazy drug experiments or I want to do some other kind of thing. And so. The great thing about MKUltra and the great thing about Delta Green is their remits are so enormous that you can wind up, you know, rerunning Jacob's Ladder in Vietnam. You can wind up rerunning uh, straight up MKUltra. You can dig into the death of Frank Olson if the people have watched Wormwood and they're all charged up about that. And, of course, that turns out to have been, you know, more than they were saying because maybe they were trying to put a mythos entity into him to erase his mind. And that's what happened. So who can say? And the specifics, you you can always leave the aliens in and have the aliens as an element, but are the aliens the core element can be another head fake that you're using uh on the on the on the player group. In in short, I would not be married uh to the aliens, although certainly they should show up because uh I think you know, even you know, if the, the players are not uh big old X Files heads, um they won't mind the occasional alien. It's it's the making it the focus on the through line that may baffle and confuse them. Right. And as uh, GMs or handlers, in the case of the Delta Green games, mm-hmm. uh, we can keep open whether the alien Mego angle is the main angle or the head fake. So what do we want as our uh, other uh, angle? Are there uh, particular, I guess they've, uh, the Delta Green guys have a, a special deal with Ramsey Campbell where they can use his stuff. So do we want to get a, a Ramsey Campbell entity in there as the possible other thing behind that? There is a Ramsey Campbell uh, entity Arc Dream has the deal, and at the time that I did Fall of Delta Green, this is a little inside baseball, we were not sure whether the deal was extendable or not, in, this, in that whether or not you could sub-license off that license. So we opted for the, the, the safest possible harbor. So when I used 
monsters inspired by Ramsey Campbell. They, none of them use his names, but they're all in there. So I think that you got a couple of possibilities for the Ramsey Campbell. There's a Ramsey Campbell, uh, uh, god called Daloth, the render of the veils, the god of true perception. And he sort of exists off in the world of perception, which I think is kind of fun with your LSD opening the doors of perception. And there is a, um, uh, a brief mention of him under the guise of a Russian, uh, cult that worships Dyleko, um, who is, I think, the extender of luck, uh, in, in Russian. And I used him, uh, as the, as the mask of Daloth, if you will. And, uh, one of the things that I allude to in Fall of Delta Green didn't have the space to cover is the notion of the inner space explorations that we've got the space program going off in the outer space that people, uh, Timothy Leary and others are trying to explore the inner space going into your, your, um, uh, your, your mind and your perception and, and what's going on inside a Delta Green agent or inside a person. And the notion of shared drug trips, on the one hand, they just take you to the dreamlands, but on the other hand, what if they take you even deeper? And so if the notion is, uh, in, in a similar way to Stranger Things, where Eleven goes into that sort of black room and can reach out, uh, to Soviet generals or to the kids or whatever, um, if you, you put someone in the black room, uh, to begin with, do they go deeper into the, into the black towards another hallucinatory reality, not necessarily the upside down, but into another kind of a mythosy space that is an aspect of Daloth. I think that's a fun direction you can go. Another possibility, of course, is the good old Loigor, who being, um, uh, uh, mysterious oriental menaces themselves, I think, tie in well with that sort of uh, modernist Fu Manchu aspect of the CIA's uh, anti-Korean and anti-Chinese paranoia that's uh, going on as sort of those, the, 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 the baseline of this whole uh, MK Ultra research in the first place. And I think bringing that a little up to the surface with the Loigor could be fun. So it might be a system where one of the reasons that, uh, Majestic is pushing this, uh, MK Ultra research so hard is that they know for a sure thing that the Loigor can do it. And they're trying to counter these, uh, waves of Manchurian candidates and amnesiac super assassins and Jason Bournes, uh, that are being sent out by perhaps the communist Chinese, perhaps the Koreans, but also perhaps by the Loigor conspiracy uh, behind them, uh, the Kuen Yuan, and that uh, they have to build them as a as a desperate defense. So on the one hand, the Majestic is doing horrible, horrible things, but the Delta Green agents are like, oh man, they're they're sort of doing it in in our defense, and maybe we should be helping them. And that that sort of presents a little more of a moral dilemma because this, of course, one of the advantages of this setting time is this is before Majestic has become completely corrupt and completely evil. I mean, we know that it's very, very dumb to try mythos research, uh, to weaponize it, but that's us. They're, they're just know, in the hubris end of this. Right. Exactly. Right. That, that, that's us. Um, uh, you know, uh, years later knowing that, but at the moment in the 1960s, there may be, there's an internal argument within Delta Green. Shouldn't we be using this knowledge to stop the mythos in that that seems to be the only thing that reliably works. And, that's the, um, uh, and then you can have people saying maybe we should be helping MK Ultra out if they're defending us against the Loigor. So well, that's I, a couple I'm going to need to go for some, uh, at least some day off here, right? We, we, can, right. we can keep the others uh, available as an option too, right? Because this mm-hmm. is a campaign arc, so things have to go uh, in and out of different flavors. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we, we can use all those things. So, but I think if we get day off and inner exploration, that means there's a scenario where the agents go and meet Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and uh, get involved in that whole counterculture uh, situation in California. Now, is it uh, 
over-egging the pudding to get to, to get Manson in there as well, or is that... Uh... Oh, not at all. Yes. The, uh, the beauty and the loveliness of the 1960s is that it is kind of, in many ways, it's kind of the last small world of government. Um, it's the last era where everyone went to school with each other at Yale or Harvard. They all know each other. They're all connected. And that tends to happen a lot with a lot of the other seemingly countercultural figures that all the worlds in the sixties are small. So you have very, very close connections between Charles Manson and say the beach boys. Um, Charles Manson, of course, famously tried to be a rock star before he became a murder cult guru. And he had a lot of connections in the music world. There's a really good book that I mentioned in followed Delta Green's uh, bibliography called weird scenes inside the Canyon. And the subtitle you'll be proud to know is Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops and the Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream. Peter Lavenda's um, uh, Sinister Forces trilogy is another book about the crossover between things like the uh, Manson cult, things like the counterculture, and things like CIA uh, covert uh, witchery, um, including MK Ultra. So, yeah, there's lots of connections to Manson, and you can you can even sort of make a deep dive and say that maybe Manson was a survivor of a of an MK Ultra experiment, or you could uh, not over uh, over explain Manson's evil and you could say nope Manson's just an awful monstrous killer and uh his actions are opening the door for the um for for Nirlathotep in the form of the Helter Skelter but um he may or may not even know that because he's so deranged right so we have a Frank Olson episode we have a Timothy Leary episode that leads into our Manson episode. Uh, are we failing a promise of Delta Green if we don't get the characters over to Nam? Um, I think that uh, Fall of Delta Green assumes that at some point you have to go to Vietnam. Um, I think that in many ways that's such an iconic part, not only of the era, but of the government's attempt to do good badly. That is the symbol, symbol of the era. And I, I think that going to Vietnam is sort of required if, if only because um, that's where you can go and you can meet these Quen Yuin super soldiers and try and stop them. Or it's where you can go because uh, there's a side project within Ultra called Chickwit that basically existed to gather uh, weird drugs from all over the world and uh, identify them all and figure out what they do. Right. So you find out that the uh, the Black Lotus powder that uh, mm-hmm. uh, Leary and Manson have been on is uh, that generates their particular form of uh, uh, LSD, that that's being harvested uh in in Vietnam and what uh so that gives you your basic uh kind of after a couple of very investigative scenarios that gives you your uh, hunt and destroy mission scenario where the mm-hmm. the mystery is where is the uh area where this is being harvested and then you just um go in there and steal all the black lotus and then ideally order in an arc light bombing to cover your traces right and so now you've got the black lotus powder and the the number one rule of black lotus powder is there's always there's always a PC is going to try their black yes, lotus powder, yes, especially if is. you set it up so that you know they've got uh you know a liver cancer that the black lotus powder will will cure cirrhosis of the liver if you want to be particularly James Elroy right. about it or their beloved wife who they've been neglecting to do all this investigating has developed the the leukemia or whatever that the black lotus will fix right because in in fall of delta green you have these bonds with uh, other human beings. Um, so that you can see them be destroyed as well. <laughs> it's, you can't have anti-humanism without humanism, Rob. Right. So you've got the black lotus powder. You've, uh, uh, someone's mind is, uh, in, uh, harmony with the day lots. And, uh, uh, what is our, what is our big finish once they come back to the, the home front? Is there a big, uh, 
event in 68 where everything can go completely uh, bonkers. Well, I mean, there's the, the sort of the, uh, the, the, the giant protests in 1968, um, that, uh, burn everything down, or you can sort of follow along, uh, fear and loathing style and, um, uh, have, you know, Nixon running against Humphrey. Uh, you begin with the, the 1968, uh, uh, democratic convention in Chicago, uh, where there's, you know, all manner of chaos is, uh, in play, um, and, uh, you can certainly, uh, have your, your big trip in the, in the middle of, um, uh, of, of that chaos, or you can have that be an inciting event that then, you know, leads you in a sort of parallel run from, uh, July of 68 down through, uh, November of 68, the election. And, you know, the characters are all dosing up with Black Lotus to follow their friend down into the corridors of inner space and try and rescue him from the black room of Daloth while, you know, the election returns are coming and it's Humphrey and Nixon neck and neck and no one knows who's going to win. And then, you know, they grab him and they pull him out just in time to say, oh, thank goodness, Richard Nixon has been elected president and we've finally got rid of this horrible democratic um, uh, incompetence and surely his secret plan will end Vietnam and we're all going to be good. Right. And uh, if I'm only running one fall of Delta Green campaign, I'm going to end it at Altamont. Yeah, right. So, that's, that's totally legitimate as that's, well. You know, that's that's straight down the aisle. So where where how does us all come to a head at Altamont? And for for the kids today, Altamont is the <laughs> Rolling Stones concert where uh, a, a spectator was stabbed by the Hells Angels who had been hired for event security. Yes. Uh, let's talk about the <laughs> naivete of the times and is uh, treated, therefore, as uh, by uh, many cultural scholars as the uh, the death of the flower power uh, part of the 60s and the beginning of the uh the spiral into the malaise of the 70s. And, so, uh, if you're doing Altamont, uh, and don't know Altamont, uh, the sort of short form of getting Altamont is to watch the still, uh, pretty excellent movie Gimme Shelter, which is a documentary about Altamont, uh, done by Albert and David Males, and is great fun to watch, even now. Um, the other thing about Altamont is that in addition to the famous stabbing that everyone knows about, uh, there is an LSD-induced drowning in an irrigation canal nearby. Oh, and this, this seems to be our, our, our jam here. And if someone tells me there's a mysterious drowning at a, uh, at a concert site far away from the coast, I'm thinking deep ones are somehow involved or something is involved, right? So I would be begin by digging into that drowning. There's probably, it's probably a completely normal person, but that could be someone who sort of gets caught in the backwash of whatever the characters are up to. And Altamont, first of all, is like I said, it's, it's in sort of the central Valley in California. If, if, if Rylas starts to rise, even just a little during satisfaction, mm-hmm. you know, somebody's going to get drowned. Someone's going to get drowned. And if, if you maybe made that happen with your connection to the, uh, inner realm and, uh, the black lotus powder, well, well, there you go. So, uh, that's an example of how you would, uh, weave together a bunch of, uh, iconic events into a fall of Delta green, uh, series. And it's, uh, time for us to, uh, uh, put our tickets to Altamont in uh, under plastic and sell them much later as collector's items. And uh, while we're doing that, head through this commercial to the segment on the other side.
In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrane Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The aroma of grilling onions, the sound of steam escaping, and the whistle of the chef preparing their delicious, delicious food welcome us into another segment of The Food Hut. And in this food hut, as perhaps has been alluded to, we are once more cracking the lid on the Instant Pot to see what's inside all the steam. Robin had an Instant Pot when we did our earlier segment on Instant Pot. Uh, it inspired uh, me to give in to Sheila's request for an Instant Pot. We now have an Instant Pot, and uh, Robin has, of course, gotten six months better at Instant Potting. Yes, I'm, I've learned some things that I, I feel I, I need to add uh, to the other uh, segment. But first, uh, how about uh, uh, you and Sheila, Ken? What uses have you been putting your uh, magical uh, Canadian technological device to? I have mostly been uh, making things in it that are a giant pain in the tail to make on the stovetop. I've made adobo chicken, uh, which is amazing, but it takes like, you know, two days to make uh, because you have to let the, um, uh, the, the, the sauce all come together and then you have to put the chicken in it and then you have to walk away forever. You do that in the Instant Pot, it takes about an hour. It's super great, um, very successful. Adobo chicken. Right, and that's like a Filipino uh, sort of vinegar. uh, Vinegar based. based, um, uh, Yeah. And it's super great. And I was super craving it and I didn't want to go all the way up to Lawrence Avenue and eat Filipino food when I could make adobo at home. I've made, um, uh, instant pot, uh, pork chops that were super successful, um, with, uh, uh, gochujang sauce on them, which is Korean sauce. Again, the instant pot tenderizes, uh, the pork and it lets the sauce go right into it. It's super great. And I, I made something else in it, but I've forgotten what it is right off the top of my head. I think I may have made stew in it, it just like you'd make it a normal uh, crock pot, except it didn't take as long and was very tasty. Right. And so you've discovered the, you know, the things that uh, one fears about an instant pot that aren't true. Let, like you won't be able to smell how delicious it is. Well, yes, mm-hmm. you can. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe you've also discovered the uh, the fact that unlike a slow cooker, uh, a uh, fresh herb will actually survive long enough to still be something at the end of the process, and mm-hmm. uh, you can add that in. I've discovered the sauté setting of the Instant Pot, which is the uh, game-changer as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the fact that you can 
brown your meat in the same place that you're going to then pressure cook it is great because it means that none of the flavor escapes or lives in a different pan. Right. It all stays in there. Yes. And now, uh, speaking of Delta Green, one of the uh, uh, Troika of Delta Green contacted us to let us know that even a traditional stovetop pressure cooker, you can still, you know, do that on the traditional one before you watch it explode all over your room. So, <laughs> and, and I'm, I imagine that John was wearing his hipster food monocle as he was uh, typing that to us. But. I'm sure he was holding his artisanally crafted bitters and um, uh, gin uh, in the process. Yes. Um, now, one of the things that they uh, that you often see recommended, I, I've been using this enough that I'm now a skeptic of certain claims made in recipes. Um, mm. For example, uh, as you pointed out last time, the results of an Instant Pot meal tend to be a little on the wet side. And one of the reasons yeah, for do. that is if you want it to pressurize, you have to have some liquid in it to begin with. Right. Um, and I have found that essentially invariably, if you put in a quarter of a cup of water and then flavor that with something, uh, whether that be a curry paste or a, a pesto or some dried tomato pesto or something, uh, that that gives you, uh, first of all, it, it fuses the uh, whatever you're cooking with that flavor. Um, and also it gives you enough pressure that you will never have the terrible uh, failure where the little button on the top that tells you it's pressurized fails to uh, go up or worse falls down before it's mm. finished cooking because then you've got something that's going to be kind of scorched and not properly done. Right. But the other side of that is that you'll often be left with a somewhat watery uh, or liquidy sort of consistency broth uh, on the uh, um, bottom of your dish. You're often advised by the recipes to just leave it on saute until it reduces. And I think that is bad advice. It takes forever in it on the saute setting. Uh, so if you're going to actually do that and you have a stove with you, <laughs> yeah. because of course the, uh, you know, the aesthetic, uh, parameters of instant pot recipe is it's not supposed to tell you to use another thing. You could reduce it on the stovetop if you wanted to, but the main dish is already cooked. So if you put it on the saute setting and leave it for the 20 to 30 minutes, that it takes to actually reduce a liquid, A, it's another 20, 30 minutes. The whole point of the Instant Pot is the instant Is the instanting. Part. And secondly, you're going to overcook the probably already perfectly cooked dish in order to reduce the sauce. This is not going to work in all cases. Sometimes you're just going to say, you know what? This is X in broth and serve it in a bowl because <laughs> broth is delicious. Who doesn't and, love broth? And the center of, of many uh, uh, world cuisines. Another thing you can do, though, is take a... A trick out of just basic old-fashioned farm cooking and thicken up that gravy uh, with either uh, cornstarch, which is what I use, or uh, flour. I would recommend cornstarch because A, it gives you a silkier texture, and uh, B, uh, it does not change the taste the way that flour will. But you just take a few teaspoons of uh, uh, cornstarch, mix them with the, as many teaspoons of water, and do uh, one at a time, so one cornstarch, one water, and then another cornstarch, and another water. Then you've got a little thickening agent. You can go and stick it in and uh, swirl it in, and that will uh, thicken up your sauce for you, just as uh, it will thicken up your uh, your gravy uh, with your Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. So, uh, for example, I made uh, asabuco a while ago, and it's like the best asabuco I've uh, succeeded in, in doing much better, much tenderer than, uh, mm -hmm. when I did it in a slow cooker. And it probably didn't take a million billion years like Asabuco takes. Uh, no, it took, uh, 55 minutes. And, uh, I put in, uh, some, uh, tomato paste and, uh, 
some red wine, and then at the end, thicken that on up with uh, with the cornstarch, and that uh, that worked great. Yeah, I mean cornstarch is uh, the the unsung workhorse of the of the chef. I think um, I'm a big fan of it. Uh, also, if you don't like cornstarch. Uh, for whatever reason, arrowroot can do that, or tapioca powder, or God forbid, gelatin. If you don't mind it having the consistency of gelatin, but it will thicken. Um, you just have to use a not a whole packet. You use a little bit, and it it'll it'll thicken up. Or good old flour. The trouble with thickening things on flour after is that you've got a little bit of a bready taste in it. You need to thicken it in something that's going to be cooking that flour down and and taking that that raw bread off. But cornstarch, in I think. Personally, 90% of applications is just as good a thickener as you're going to find. Yeah, and so uh, let's see. Uh, I also want to correct the misapprehension from last time that uh, onions will not caramelize in uh, in an Instant Pot. Uh, in fact, uh, apparently if you uh, put them in a little bit of broth by themselves for half an hour, chop up a whole ton of onions and then uh, cook them away, and then put them in bags and freeze them for later for whenever you want caramelized onions. Because as we all know, one of the great myths of the recipe world is they will lie to you and say, take 15 minutes to caramelize onions, which is not a thing you can actually do in our physical universe. No. Caramelizing onions is a special and magical thing. And, uh, it takes, uh, someone, someone has to spend their whole life doing it. Then it may be you, it may be someone else, but it's just going to happen. Um, I'll also add just before we go that another thing that I've tried since the last time we talked about instant pot was uh, making homemade stock. So again, this is something that, uh, pays off en- uh, enormously if you bother to do it. You know, if you roasted a chicken, for example, which is uh, dead easy, and if you cook it at a high enough temperature, it takes as long as it would in an instant pot, and it's much better if you do it in the oven. So do it in the oven, roast that chicken, but then when you're done, since your instant pot is clean, since you haven't used it for the uh, uh, chicken, now take the uh, uh, the bones, plunk them on in there. Uh, you can, if you want to play... Uh, the sophisticated way, you can wrap them all up in uh, in cheesecloth so you can uh, remove them uh, easily. Or you can, uh, as a lazy person, I just use a skimmer to get them out at the end. But you uh, uh, put the bones in there. You fill up the uh, Instant Pot to the uh, uh, recommended top level uh, with water. Then you add some salt and uh, maybe some uh, uh, chopped onions or scallions or a couple of crushed garlic cloves. And then you just go boop and uh, walk away 55 minutes later without having to come up and check on it and watch it stirring for hours as you would uh, doing uh, stock on the stovetop, uh, suddenly, magically, you have as much stock as you can possibly put into bags and, again, put in your freezer to use uh, later because stock is the miracle ingredient that makes many, many, many things better and is always uh, great to have on hand. And homemade stock is better even than the really good stock that you can buy in stores. Homemade stock is just better. It just is. That's yeah, just by, the way by of the an world. order of magnitude. Usually because what you're using is an order of magnitude more actual chicken bone than the person who made the stock back in the factory. And also it hasn't been sitting around in a allegedly shelf stable box for eight months. Yes. <laughs> and so for example, uh, something that it sort of, I used to make a lot, uh, but had sort of given up on, uh, was, uh, uh, biryani, which is, a you know, Indian rice with curry and either, mm-hmm. uh, uh, vegetables or vegetables plus meat. And, uh, I've started making it again because when you, uh, cook, uh, biryani the traditional way where you just cook in a whole bunch of water and then drain it, the rice becomes a little uh, dry, especially if you're using, uh, the, uh, healthier, nuttier, uh, brown basmati rice. But the instant pot, can infuse that rice with delicious, juicy stock in 22 minutes and uh, 
uh, cook the vegetables with it. And now uh, biryani, which used to be uh, perfectly good, is now just amazing. So uh, try a biryani, people. Yes, and use chicken stock, not water. Because using water uh, when you don't have to, is uh, it's an act of self-abnegation. I've got nothing against self-abnegation, but, you know. Why do it? Yes, and, and certainly against stock abnegation. So, uh, right. and, and, uh, you know, the part of the process, you'll have a delicious roast chicken. Exactly. And, and nothing wrong with that. Uh, I think that having expressed a truism, it may be time to wait for our little button to go up and tiptoe away into another segment. Uh, let's hit that little button and watch it go. Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666. He discovered the way that alchemical truths That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Close the lid and smell the steam alongside such backers as... Noel Warford. Pedro Garcia. Samwise Kreider. Todd W. Olson. And Stephen Hammond. The rattling chains, the creepy windows, and the echoing moans in the hall welcome us to the horror hut, uh, that most terrifying of haunted mansions, that most appalling of tottering castles on the bleak tarn of literature rising before us. It contains today... Oh, look, it's Ken and Robin. That can't be bad. Ken and Robin are... Oh, hold on. If those are Ken and Robin... And we're Ken and Robin. That means we're dealing, Robin, with doppelgangers. Oh, no, not doppelgangers. Yes, doppelgangers. Well, if I'm still here, at least I know I haven't been body snatched. Because uh, we're going to fold in two uh, related horror tropes and look at doppelgangers and body snatchers. So I've always liked these tropes a lot because uh, uh, they reflect uh, to me... Uh, a sort of uh, a metaphorical horror, a personal horror, uh, the f- uh, invasion of the body snatchers, the the great, uh, you know, original template for all of this uh, seems to be so rich in metaphor that you can do a new one every generation and it's still uh, pertinent. Uh, recently I saw 
a uh, really cool variation of that by the Japanese director Kyoshi Kurosawa, who's one of my favorites, uh, called Before We Vanish. And uh, as is often the case in uh, Kurosawa's horror, the eerie thing about it is the very casualness of it, that the possessed people, the, their new alien personas are very sort of laid back and sort of uh, they don't really comprehend the world and they have this sort of giggling detachment about the... Uh, fact that they're uh, taking over the world and, and there's some, but they're, you know, even more horrible than the usual, you know, people have been completely drained of identity that they've just sort of, you know, they're just sort of alien and uncaring and callous and uh, invasion kind of, of the mocking. body tourists. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, what, what is frightening, uh, about running into a doppelganger? How do we uh, tell a doppelganger story, uh, in role playing or in fiction in a way that, uh, gets at the core of that, of that fright of, uh, uh, meeting yourself outside of yourself. I mean, I think that what it is, is that is one of the paradigmatic experiences of the uncanny is we don't, you don't even necessarily have to set it up. If you just say in the course of the game, Hey, that guy across the street um looks familiar. It's, it's weird. You don't have just something strange. And then they look at him, of course, because they're player characters. And it's like, yeah, that's, Oh my God, that's, he's got your face. He looks like you in the mirror. That will just by itself be weird and creepy because it is weird and creepy. It's the uncanny. Um, the notion, uh, that, uh, seeing your own double is an omen of death goes way back, uh, in English, uh, lore. It was called the fetch. The Germans, of course, have the wonderful world doppelganger for it, but it was always bad luck to see your double or the double of someone that you know closely because what it means is that their spirit is out of their body, which means something else is inside it and trouble is uh, ensuing. And you can hit that hard or soft. There's a great, uh, I think under, underloved Edgar Allan Poe story called William Wilson, which is about a guy uh, who meets his doppelganger. And then lots of people have used Poe's sort of obsession with mirrors and imagery as the notion that there's Poe doppelgangers wandering around causing trouble. Lovecraft even used it for gosh sakes in hypnos. So I think that just, even presenting them with the idea is is messed up, and then you sort of can play off how they react to it. Do they try and kill him? Do they try and run away? Do they investigate? Do they wonder if maybe they're uh, in a Mission Impossible universe where people can just wander around wearing your faces? Is it a pod creature invasion, as you posit earlier? There's so many possible, by now, uh, lardons onto that uh, central myth that you can sort of just entertain them, entertain yourself watching them entertain themselves, investigating that one uh, sighting. And it's a way that you can't really do that with like a UFO sighting, because unless you're physically present at a UFO sighting, someone tells you, oh, I saw a blue light in the sky. You're like, yeah, probably the planet Venus, you drunkie. And then you move on with your life, even if at the moment it felt really uncanny and strange in a way that you can't communicate. But, oh, I saw my twin across the street. That just plain feels strange. Right, because the fears at play are that you are going to be displaced, Mm -hmm. Right. That this uh, doppelganger is gradually going to take over your life and, and cast you out of your own life. Uh, the fear. And it also goes to, uh, you know, the universal fear of not being in control of who you are or what you're doing. And so that you can discover, you know, the doppelganger uh, represents uh, what in Jungian terms would be the shadow, your dark side, all of the things that you're denying about yourself that you don't want to be. And so a terrible crime is committed in town after you see your doppelganger and uh, there's uh, what kind of looks like you on the uh, security camera footage. And so that you are, uh, in that case now, afraid not only of being directly attacked or displaced by the doppelganger, but uh, the authorities are coming for you because you've been, you know, you've been framed. So that brings in the whole 
uh, sort of Kafka-esque uh, a- angle as well, and that's that's part of the uh, the terror. And uh, especially if the horrible thing that it's doing is a horrible thing that you thought of doing and didn't, that you restrained yourself from doing, but the doppelganger represents uh, yourself uh, free of morality and constraint, uh, it is by definition your uh, your nemesis, your your great arch enemy. Yeah, the doppelganger. You know, the, we we use the term evil twin uh, also in sort of the pulpy side of it, or even the soap operatic side of it. Um, but yeah, the notion that once your evil twin shows up, they are your arch enemy. And so, even in like the superhero comics, if Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman all go into the parallel universe and they meet Ultraman, Owlman, and um, Superwoman. They don't begin by, you know, Superman just, you know, burning Owlman's feet off uh, and saying, well, now we're one down, Batman, you help uh, with the other two. It's like, nope, everyone goes after their own uh, doppelganger because that's how the story has to go. And um, you, the notion that your your evil twin makes your perfect arch enemy because they know you and they will do all the evil things that you know you wanted to do but didn't do because you're not a terrible person. Right. It physicalizes uh, the notion of internal conflict. Your internal mm-hmm. conflict is now an external conflict because there's your doppelganger with its hands around your throat. Mm-hmm. Or your doppelganger with your hands around your, you know, your kid's throat or, yeah. or something. Uh, something even worse than uh, attacking yourself. Um, and then over and above the whole notion that they will just, you know, Jekyll and Hyde and they'll go out and commit all the fun crimes you wanted to do and you're going to get blamed anyway. And that's no fun. Um, and, and so, you can, and because they're a spirit, you can't pull it on them and go find their beloved daughter and, and murder her, first of all, because that's wrong. But second of all, because they probably don't have one. They're just sort of this weird, creepy projection of you somehow, a death fetch or an alien clone or something. And the body snatcher fear, the, uh, until it comes for you at the end, which is what body snatchers do uh, mostly, though not always, uh, is the fear of uh, losing your loved ones, of them, uh, you know, and it's the, the fear that uh, someone you really care about will suddenly change on you and no longer recognize you or care about you. And uh, there's an actual uh, uh, neurological condition called Capgrass syndrome. Uh, famously, the character actor uh, Tony Rosato, who was on Saturday Night Live uh, for a little while before he died, had this syndrome and thought that his uh, wife and daughter were imposters and had to be institutionalized. And it's, it's something that can happen. It happens physically to your brain. Um, sometimes it's congenital, sometimes it's the result of uh, drug abuse. And you can suddenly think that the people in your life are body snatchers, that they're imposters. And uh, so this is uh, a literal, real thing that can happen to you in real life, as well as something that can happen to you in horror stories. But the idea that uh, you uh, are slowly becoming isolated, that all of the bonds that you have that uh, connect you to a community are being destroyed, and the people who you... Uh, used to come to for comfort are no longer really them and also nobody believes you, uh, which again keeps us in that sort of Kafka-esque uh, paranoid realm is uh, is also what is very frightening about body snatchers. There's another, there's a, a similar situation that doesn't have a cool name, uh, but it's called mirrored self-misidentification and it's the belief that the person in the mirror is not you. That they're a different person 
possibly a younger person, possibly your evil twin, possibly though that's my dead brother or something. And you have the notion that they're off on the other side of the mirror doing, doing evil and plotting against you and uh, mirrors. Uh, uh, that could be a whole nother segment of the horror hut because there's so much creepy, uh, bad wrongness in mirrors. But that's another, again, the notion that, Oh, you look across and you see the guy who looks just like you, but he parts his hair on the other side because he's your mirror image, not your actual physical double. But, you might take a little while to recognize that because you've only seen yourself in the mirror. You think you part your hair on the left when, in fact, you part your hair on the right. And, of course, the other uh, animating fear of the body snatcher trope is the idea of society is changing out from under you, that all of a sudden uh, people are different and they're joining this weird movement and they're not who they used to be and they're putting on armbands and they're marching. And, of course, this, too, is a uh, magicification of something that can really happen in real life where, you know, all of a sudden it turns out that uh, uh, you've lived in peace and harmony with your neighbors for 20, 30 years. The fact that you belong to putatively different ethnic groups has been uh, not a deal for you really for your whole life. And all of a sudden, over a period of uh, uh, a few months, hysteria is whipped up and uh, people are uh, dividing up into uh, uh, ethnic groups and, and killing each other. Well, that's happened a couple of times in our mm-hmm. uh, real uh, remembered history one or two yes and you can and you can look both at the film uh invasion of the body snatchers the the good one by uh don siegel and you can look at the a novel by jack finney and jack finney's novel is not as anti-communist as uh, uh siegel's film but finney's novel is very much about we've let our society sort of fall apart without noticing and a lot of the body snatcher fear in that book is what what do the pod creatures do they don't you know, run around and raven and bite people they just don't mow their lawn they let property values go they're kind of slubby and and intro and they don't care about other people and it's not even a notion that you know they're uh, the, the the front wave of some martian invasion that's going to blast washington dc to rubble they're just not going to keep up community standards and everything that we sort of didn't realize we value because it involved other people can just go away if other people don't value it. And that sort of, that's not like an apocalyptic fear, but it's a very real fear. And it's, it sort of leads you to some of the marching and the rest of it, as you mentioned. And it leads other people to, um, uh, you know, write really terrific novels like Jack Finney. So there's, there, you can go all kinds of ways. Your, your neighbors are changing visibly, but the, your neighbors are also changing invisibly. Both of those are part of the body snatcher fear. And the third one is that, Maybe your neighbors don't care about you. Maybe you're dead to them in a way. Uh, and that's another part of the body double worry is that maybe I'm the ghost and that's the real me that's over there. So all of those fears come together in Finney's novel and, uh, to a lesser extent in the, in the, in the movies based on it. And both of these can provide big fun in a role playing context. So there's been a lot over, over the years of me playing the doppelgangers of other players' characters, <laughs> especially if I c- can do a, uh, an okay impression of the, uh, the player. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, that was a huge part of the drama system uh, game that we recent, recently ran where some, someone else introduced the dead body, a, a simulacra of one of the characters and another person brought that body to life. And guess what? That character was a big part of the whole rest of the uh, many sessions of, uh, yeah. of the series. I had a, I had a, um, I had a and, player, God bless him, um, who, honest to God, during a, a game, uh, it was a GURPS Cabal game, uh, comes across a scarecrow. And he says, I'm going to 
put my coat and hat on that scarecrow. And I said, you're going to do that on purpose? It's not even my birthday. So, of course, yeah. what happens is <laughs> he wanders away to do some other thing because I came up with a, a distraction really fast so that when he came back, the scarecrow was gone with his coat and hat. And then people started seeing him all kinds of places. He gave me a doppelganger just as a beautiful gift, like a like a, a lovely boy handing you an apple uh, for teacher, as you say. It's just uh, – it was so great. And when you get a player character – who walks into that kind of a path, whether it's, you know, oh, I look in the magic mirror, what could go wrong? Or, um, uh, I'm going to go to sleep on UFO Hill. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's a gift and you should use it. Yes. And I've certainly, uh, so I've now taken the whole doppelganger thing and, uh, uh, put that as an element that's in Yellow King. So the, uh, the final two, uh, sequences are alternate reality versions of each other so that you play uh, one set of characters in the uh, the aftermath world, which is a very different alternate timeline after the uh, supernatural regime in America has fallen. Uh, and then you go and play what is putatively at first seems to be the real world with those same characters. And it's not a science fiction alternate timeline where there was a single convergence, but it's a uh, it's a reality overlap so that the characters can be quite different. But of course, uh, if you are doing that uh, and fail to have one of the characters from the previous aftermath world show up in the this is normal now world uh, you're you're missing a tool that I've uh, provided for you as, as part of that game and I guess now that I'm uh, heading into plugs uh, that's a, yet another sign that it's time to uh, we'll leave our duplicates here as decoys and move through this commercial to see what waits on the other side When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, guns... And opera. Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. It's time once more to enter that most diffuse and ill-defined, dare we say even foggy-edged of huts. Uh, the only way we can tell that it's uh, the hut we're thinking of is that, oh, there we go, in the corner there, there's the uh, gray alien and the Nordic alien, and they're having kombucha, and they're uh, they're dishing about Darrow's today. They've got a lot of mean things to say about them. And out uh, through the window, we see the alien big cat screaming on the moor, and what he's screaming about is the fact that, uh, among other uh, just basic baseline Lipton-y topics that weirdly we have never gotten to directly yet for a whole segment. I think we've uh, talked about it in passing on Ken's bookshelf is historical Arthur theories because uh, Ken, uh, I think we all know that King Arthur 
existed in real history exactly like Hal Foster drew him, or did he? Indeed, he did not. The wonderful world of Arthur is a gift that keeps on giving. Not only is the Arthur myth one of the core elements of our Western cultural patrimony, also, it's a cracking good story, as Hal Foster, among others, have discovered. Also, it's super magic and weird, as lots of other people have discovered, some of them the same people. And finally, it is completely obscure in the world of real history, which makes it the best kind of myth, because you don't have to go back and have a bunch of sniffy people saying, well, actually, George Washington didn't chop down a cherry tree, and Benjamin Franklin was probably working for British intelligence, and Thomas Jefferson just doesn't bear close examination at all. He's King Arthur. You don't know. He could have been awesome. Probably was. Um, the historicity of Arthur uh, rests on literally one thing, and that one thing is that we do know that circa 500 AD, give or take, the Saxon invaders of Britain were beaten like a drum at a battle that has come down to us as Baden Hill or Mount Baden. Everything else about Arthur is made up based on that. <laughs> Including the word Arthur. Including the word Arthur. The word Arthur uh pops up in Welsh legendary as one of the legendary heroes. And because of the nature of the Welsh legendary, uh begins in um some uh triads and some early, early epic poems, and they're not about Arthur. They just sort of mention Arthur and say, oh, yeah, that guy's pretty great. He's no Arthur, but he's okay. <laughs> or they say, hey, here are the three cool things Arthur did. And they say he went into hell and got a cauldron, and he did this, and he did that. And there we go. Now we're done with Arthur. You know about Arthur. I'm just doing that to prove I can do a, a triplet poem. And so there's these little elements that indicate there is a Welsh hero figure named Arthur that is being sort of paid attention to maybe as late as the uh, ninth century. Right. But but he would be king of the Welsh, not king of the Britons. Right. Yes. Well, the Welsh, this is a historical actual fact. Uh, while we're doing a historical actual fact, the Welsh are the Britons because the Britons were the people who lived in Britain before the coming of the Saxons and also before the coming of the Romans come to that. But the war uh, that Arthur is the commander in uh, is going on. It is between the Britons and the Saxons, and the way you know the Welsh lost is now they're called the Welsh, not the Britons. Right, yes. <laughs> and uh, Welsh actually is the Saxon word for foreigner, <laughs> guy across the stupid mountains that we haven't killed yet. So um the historical Arthur is sort of, uh he's definitely, if he exists at all, he's the guy who beat the Saxons at Baden Hill. Because archaeologically, you can look and say, wow, 30 years after Baden Hill, the Saxon frontier does not move. Yes, he's he's the enemy of the Anglo-Saxons, right. not the epitome of the Anglo-Saxons. Exactly. So he's Anthony Hopkins, not um, or Richard Burton. He's not um, uh, one of those uh, snooty uh, English guys. So we know that something stopped the Saxons cold for about 30 years, give or take. And again, you can get all manner of fights about that from archaeologists, but that's roughly the case. Then, much, 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 much later, uh, there's a lovely fellow named Geoffrey of Monmouth, who writes a history of the kings of England called Historia Britannorum. And he believes uh, that it is important because his patrons are both the king of uh, Wales or a prince of Wales and the king of England that he has to sort of uh, make something up that makes everyone happy with each other. And the figure that he makes up is King Arthur. And everything that we think we know, quote unquote, about King Arthur 
comes from the good old Jeffrey of Monmouth. So in many ways, uh, King Arthur is a super successful fictional character like Sherlock Holmes or like Tarzan or like Batman. And whether or not there is an actual Sherlock Holmes in the person of an Edinburgh uh, a physician named Joseph Bell or an actual Tarzan in the person of some uh, dude that Edgar Rice Burroughs read about who survived a shipwreck in Africa or an actual uh, Batman in the form of Batman doesn't matter because we've got this wonderful fictional Arthur that uh, Jeffrey of Monmouth writes about. And that becomes the basis of all of our later Arthurs. Every now and again, some uh, smart mouth will try and write a Arthur book that goes just to the Welsh sources. And then they realize there's about a paragraph of Welsh sources and they have to sneak, you know, come shamefacedly back to Jeffrey of Monmouth or usually to one of the French people who wrote after Jeffrey of Monmouth who said, uh, I like your Arthur, but there are no French people in it. And they had Lancelot. Now, uh, if we just let it go at that, uh, that, uh, leaves away uh, what I assume are several shelves of uh, fine quality crankery on your bookshelf. Oh, God, yes. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, because uh, the idea that he's just a fictional character is unsatisfying to cranks, and so they've come up with different answers over the years. So are there sort of key threads of uh, historical Arthurism, or... Does everybody come up with their own theory? As with all crankery, uh, very few people are super original. Arthur, you get more originality than most because the tendency in Arthur's studies, which I think I may have mentioned previously, is to decide that Camelot happened to be whatever landscape you saw from your back window as you wrote the book. Um, so if you're in Scotland, Camelot was in Scotland. If you're in Wales, it was in Wales. If you're on the Isle of Man, it's on the Isle of Man. If you're in North Carolina, Camelot's in North Carolina somehow. I don't local know pride, people. Local pride. This stuff is all going to be sold in gift shops. You might as well have local pride in it. So the combination of general English eccentricity and that habit means there are more strains to the Arthur legend qua. The various candidates for historical Arthur generally resolve down to a few strains. Either someone picks a historical king of Wales and says, it's that guy. Um, he's who we're actually talking about. There is a fellow named Jeffrey Ash, who is one of the great uh, raw miners of crazy out of the world and should be, you know, carried around on the shoulders of people like me um, instead of made fun of on podcasts. Yes. Who came my up with the my historical Arthur bookshelf is one book by Jeffrey Ash. Right. And, and it's a fine one. It's the discovery of King Arthur, um, or it's one of the sequels that he wrote after he realized that was a really good seller. Um, and he posits a Roman a cavalry leader named Riothamus as the basis of King Arthur. Yes, because that's satisfying because it has none of the actual traits we want Arthur to have. So that's right, good. Yes. Gildas, uh, the, the guy who mentions the Battle of, of Baden, get, does us the no favors whatsoever of not using the word Arthur to describe the leader of that battle. He describes him as a fellow named Ambrosius Aurelianus. And we don't know anything at all about him except for the line in Gildas. And so that's what we know about our, about, about Ambrosius. So you have that sort of Romany side of things. You have the Welsh side of things. And then there are genuinely delightful, crazy people who say that he was a fellow named Lucius Artorius Castus, who is the only Roman official known to have operated in Britain with a name anything like Arthur. The trouble, of course, is that he operated in the 2nd century AD, not the 6th century AD. And so you have to take the notion that, oh, he probably beat the Picts, and then they just used his name because the Welsh were so impressed 
as the name of their Arthur hero. And then that got applied later to the victor of Baden Hill. And by the time you've said that, you're engaged in a lot of special pleading. There's a lovely uh, book called, um, uh, I think it's called From Scythia to Camelot, that argues that the uh, knights of the round table were um, uh, Alan mercenaries from uh, the uh, southern Ukraine that had been taken by the Romans and plopped down in Britain and had somehow remained ethnically pure uh, and bred their Alan horses such that they were the a secret weapon of the Britons against the Saxons, but that the war against the Saxons killed them all off, and that's what happened to Camelot. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of conveniences in, in that particular thread. And, oh, and, and the best part is, it depends on similarities between the stories of Arthur and the heroic stories of the Georgian Narts, uh, who are the Georgian sort of demigod heroes, uh, for its evidence. Uh, it, it Hats off. Hats off to, right. to the authors of that one. And then generally you start, someone does, goes and they look around and they figure out that there is in fact a, a given Welsh or Britonic prince who maybe can be, um, uh, uh, dragged out. There's, um, uh, a, a crazy person, a grail crazy person named Lawrence Gardner who plumps for a Welsh princeling named Vortiper, which apparently is the same name as Arthur if you account for linguistic drift, or at least you do if you're Lawrence Gardner. Um, and then, you start getting into actually historical Welsh kings like Urien of Regid or um, uh, some of the other Arthfales and things like that that are actually people. The um, uh, first actual person to be named Arthur in history is Artur Ap Pater, who um, uh, is apparently a general in uh, and king of Diffid, which is southern Wales, and he reigns around 600. So he's only 100 years late, but at least his name is Arthur, by gosh. And that's where a lot of people say, well, the Welsh hero Arthur from the Gadadan and all the other guys is actually referring to this guy, Arthur, not to King Arthur versus the Saxons, who's a different guy. But they get conflated because medievals don't care about chronology, which, in fairness, is pretty true. Uh, now, uh, if only there was some element like a wizard in the stories of Arthur, then you could get an occult angle on. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, Merlin. Merlin. So uh, what interest has Arthur been uh, to the uh, occult tradition? <laughs> a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like a different segment a lot? Like uh, very possibly. There is a I'm just super fast. There's a book by uh, Jesse Weston from, from Ritual to Romance, which is all about the notion that uh, the Grail myth is a case of the Frazerian myth of the dying and resurrecting God. And that is where all of that nonsense comes out of. Again, they're both myths, so depending on what you believe about myth, it might not even be nonsense. It is nonsense, but anyway. And, and so that has just driven one you know, easily half of the occult world over a cliff. Then there is the rest of it, which is Arthur used uh, Merlin's magic to build Stonehenge, which is an authentic story that uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth either found or made up. Um, and the whole notion of Merlin having been uh, maybe born of a demon. And so he's got all kinds of weird stuff going on with him and uh, is all manner of fun. And Merlin is in fact associated with the myth by our hero, Geoffrey of Monmouth. And, Jeffrey of Monmouth took a myth that is a genuine Welsh myth of a sort of crazy guy who lives in the woods and tells prophecies named Myrdin, M-Y-R-D-D-I-N, um, uh, or Myrlinus in uh, Latin, and says, that guy is a crazy bard and he gives prophecies and um, uh, in sort of classical um, uh, mashup style, our buddy uh, Jeffrey says, well, we need a magician for our king. Uh, we've got a crazy guy giving prophecies. That's close enough. 
we'll we'll name him Merlin and we'll put yes. him in. We, we need someone to send our hero off on adventures. Exactly. Does he have a funny hat? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Boom, problem solved. So the notion of Merlin and Arthur being a team is pretty much uh, Jeffrey of Monmouth's idea, although he takes some of it from a guy named Nennius, who's a Welsh monk writing in the ninth century, and he uh, writes his own history of Britain with his own um, little bit of uh, Arthur in it, and uh, with Merlin as the buddy of um, uh, Ambrosius Aurelianus, who you will remember is Jeffrey's or is Gildas's name for the war leader who knocks out the bad guys at Baden. Well, I think that's a, that's a one oh one on, on a vast shelf groaning uh, topic. So if anybody has any uh, further uh, bits of that you, that you would like uh, us to tease out in more detail, and by which I mean Ken tease out in more detail and I make <laughs> smart ass remarks, uh, please let us way. know via our <laughs> Patreon. And uh, I think it's uh, time for us, Ken, to uh, put the sword back in the stone uh, for another week, but we'll be uh, back. We'll be back when our country needs us most, Robin. Exactly. More more questing, more myths, and, uh, and maybe a, a box or two full of books next week. So, Could be. Uh, We'll, we'll catch you then, folks. Oh, and before we go, if you've enjoyed this, I can wholeheartedly recommend uh, Dr. Caitlin R. Green's uh, webpage on the historicity and historicization of Arthur. And Dr. Green, spoiler, uh, says, don't be silly. Arthur's a fictional character, you crazy people. But uh, she says it at great length with lots of footnotes and will give you all of the super important details that I have scanted, skipped over, or gotten wrong in this. So... Uh, I can only recommend uh, Dr. Green's fabulous, fabulous page on the topic. Okay. Well, now we really got to go because I, I think there's some vengeful nymphs coming for us. <laughs> oh, uh, quick. Uh, give me my sword. I will hurl it into the lake. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Paul Green Press. Askfagel. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Sit at the finest of roundtables with backers exactly like Patrick Joint, Adam Grokjohn, Aaron Sapp, Andrew Reichart, and Corey Welch. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Our newest shirt is our best-selling shirt. That shirt is Time Incorporated. Changing history since Aristotle was a Triceratops. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.